If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I want you to meet Vlad Tenev, the co-founder and CEO of Robinhood, a fast-growing brokerage giving millions of people access to our financial system. Since co-founding Robinhood in 2013 with the Stanford roommate, Vlad has scaled the company to over 13 million users, has raised over $1 billion in funding. Before Robinhood, Vlad started two finance companies in New York City. He earned a BS in mathematics from Stanford and an MS in mathematics from UCLA. He's been recognized on the Forbes 30 Under 30 and the Fortune 40 Under 40. Um, welcome, Vlad. I'm so excited to have you today. And I want to just quickly start from the beginning. For anyone who's not among the current 13 million plus users and growing, it's probably 14 by now. What is Robinhood in your own words? And what's your mission with what you're building with Robinhood? Sure. And thank you for, for having me, Alexa. I've been a fan of your show and your work for quite a while. So let me start with our mission. So our mission is to democratize finance for all. And we believe that the financial system for the longest time has been uh, primarily for the wealthy and it should be built to work for everyone. And our way of doing that is through a mobile first platform that lets users invest, spend and manage their money at their own pace and on their own terms. I want to double click a little bit on your, your mission before we dive in and talk so much more about standing up Robin Hood. And you have a sentence that I heard you say once, which is, what if we can make 100% of Americans investors? Just talk a little bit about that vision. That's clearly the vision that's driving you in the back of your mind is what if we can make every American, every hardworking person able to be an investor? What could that do? In your own words, what would that unlock? I think there's a lot of financial habits that are ubiquitous for Americans. Lots of people do online shopping and kind of consumerism has in large part been ritualized in this country where, you know, we, we celebrate getting the new thing and making shopping and, and getting our goods delivered in as little time as possible. Like those are, those are some of the most celebrated innovations. And for a while, I think, saving has been in that category. There, there's obviously been sort of a cultural relevance to saving. And I think what we've seen this year is investing increase in cultural relevance. So more and more young people who previously hadn't been investing before um, started investing. And I think what you're seeing now is sort of a reaction to that and people asking some fundamental questions like, is it good for people to invest at such a young age? Should it be this easy to invest? Or should there be more guardrails, more safeguards, more sort of like limitations to it? And I think that's all part of 
it becoming more ubiquitous and more culturally relevant. As for why I think it's important for people to become investors, I think if you look back historically, and you know, obviously things change, and this isn't meant to be forward-looking, but you know, the stock market in the U.S. has been the most powerful wealth creation engine that we've had. And, and you look back to people putting hundreds or thousands of dollars on a regular basis, starting at young ages, that that money could really grow and become something very, very significant in a world where interest rates are close to zero. So you're not getting very much out of your savings account where people don't have the luxury of spending their entire careers at one employer, like maybe they would have 50 years ago and benefiting from sort of a, a very stable pension plan. I think individuals have to take charge of their own investing and think about their futures. And the younger they start and the earlier they build those, those habits to become investors, the better off they'll be because compound interest has time to work and even small amounts contributed regularly can lead to something incredibly meaningful over a span of decades. I'm sort of smiling here because it's almost like you and I stand on the same soapbox in many ways, which is compounding interest isn't magic, it's math. The last 100 years, the average returns are about 10%. And even if you just put away $10 a month and let it compound over 20 years, you end up creating real savings for people. And one of the things you said at the top of this was that culturally, young people are starting to care more. It's like we're going through a moment. I would love just to get a little bit of, why do you think that is? What do you think is driving that from your point of view? I think there's a couple of, uh, of trends that you see developing. I think one of those is just you know, Robinhood existing and offering a new take on investing. I think prior to Robinhood, you would have had to use a, a legacy discount broker. And I think the, the products from a product standpoint were confusing and not very simple. So that limited the market and the people that would be interested in it. There were high account minimums. So at a lot of these places, you wouldn't even be able to open an account unless you were ready to make a commitment to fund it with $1,000 or $2,000, which is a big, a big commitment, you know, before you have to save that money away. And a lot of people, I think, aren't willing to, to do that for something that they have no prior experience with. The commissions, of course, and prior to Robinhood, you know, you were getting charged five to ten dollars for every transaction, which meant that you couldn't really diversify, right? You couldn't really make a reasonable investment without having that investment be somewhat large. For example, if there was a ten dollar commission, you can't really make a hundred dollar investment because that's that's ten percent of the value immediately, right? So Robinhood, I think, accelerated the removal of trading commissions and account minimums. So those aren't really part of it. And that's, that's benefited all customers, not just Robinhood customers. And then more recently, we've rolled out fractional shares. A lot of the companies that, that younger people are interested in that make the products that we care about have high share prices. And with fractional shares, we sort of democratize that. So now you can buy any amount of any stock commission-free and in real time. I think that's been a huge part of it. So the technology is, has certainly enabled more people to participate, and we're seeing that in the data. And I think 
the macro trends have accelerated it as well. Like look just a year ago, you know, the Fed funds rate was at about two, two-ish percent, which means that, you know, a lot of people were getting 2% or so interest rate in savings accounts. Now with the federal funds rate at close to zero, uh, savings isn't really an attractive place to keep your money. And that also pushes more and more people towards investing. And, you know, 2020 also had the pandemic, which was interesting from two standpoints. One, you saw a market crash in March that also excited people because they were kind of waiting on the sidelines to get into the market at more attractive prices and multiples. And you had a lot of other things that people would spend their money on, like shopping and restaurants closed down. So more of that money was available for, for people to invest. And you saw that further accelerated when the government sent out stimulus checks to people a few months later. Glad I'm already smiling because I think I could talk to you for hours. Uh, and, and so I'm have to. I'm being really thoughtful about which questions I want to ask you. One, I just want to say the fractional share piece, I think is absolutely fascinating. And I look forward to the day when people can pay, you know, friends can pay each other back with a fractional share of Tesla rather than cash. And I think it's that sort of liquidity of investing long-term that I think we want to have be the common denominator of how we, we think about the future. But first, I want to go to the beginning. Just talk a little bit about kind of the personal risk you would have taken standing up the company and the aha moment that led you to say, let's go build Robinhood. Well, it really started more than 15 years ago at Stanford when Beiju and I were both uh, studying physics and math as undergrads. And so we met summer after my sophomore year and we became really good friends and we sort of bonded over doing problem sets together late at night in the physics building. And it's actually somewhat similar. You know, if you're, if you're building a company, you're banging your head against the wall, trying to solve difficult problems. And it's somewhat similar to, you know, doing problem sets in math and physics. So I think we learned to work together pretty well at a very early point in our friendship. And later on, you know, when we graduated, Beiju uh, joined a financial company in San Francisco and I went to grad school. His first month on the job, which was my first month at grad school, Lehman Brothers went under and you had the financial crisis. And what we decided to do made a lot of sense at the time, but in hindsight sounds a little bit silly, is to start a financial company in the middle of the financial crisis. So I dropped out of school. He left his job. We moved to New York and we built two finance companies that weren't very successful but in hindsight, you know, we were building software for algorithmic trading firms. And what they did was they gave us a lot of exposure to the industry. So we figured out exactly what happens to a trade from the time it's placed to when it's executed, when it settles and clears on the back end, all of the compliance and kind of the exchange dynamics. So we figured out how, how everything worked on a very deep technical level. And then as we were scaling the company, we decided to move back to California, and this was in 2011. And there were a couple of interesting things happening right around that time, uh, which I'm sure you remember being a, a New Yorker for a while. One of them was the Occupy Wall Street movement. And it was really interesting because I remember sort of like walking through the tents in Manhattan on my way to the office. And then, and this was 2011, a couple of months later, I moved to San Francisco. Our first office was on Market Street 
in downtown. And as I was moving in there, you know, the tent city was extending all the way from that office miles down to the ferry building. So it was really everywhere. I mean, it was a ubiquitous movement all around the world. And it was people of our age group who were disillusioned by the financial industry. So that was certainly in the zeitgeist of the time. And then the third thing was in San Francisco and to a certain extent in New York, you had kind of mobile technology growing from from nothing. So in New York, it was Foursquare, which I think was one of the first kind of mobile native startups that was doing something really interesting and kind of redefining a, a behavior that people had. And then in San Francisco, Uber and Instagram were, were getting big right around the time we got there. So I think we were kind of in a unique position because we straddled both coasts and we saw three of these paradigms coming into place and we sort of put them together. Um, and the idea for Robinhood from the very beginning was uh, to be a mission-driven company empowering small investors, hence the name Robinhood, to give people access to commission-free, no account minimum investing, which we knew was possible because we kind of understood the space and understood the economics. And also couple that with a simple mobile interface that just works and allows you to go from you know, not having the app downloaded to being an investor in five minutes or less. And I think our unique backgrounds and experiences actually allowed us to see all of these things and see that they could be put together into something very, very powerful. Vlad, I'm really sad that the day Lehman Brothers went under, you and I weren't buddies because I I walked into the um, the admissions office at HBS and dropped out to go start a financial company. And it sounds like you were doing the same on the opposite coast. Um, and it would have been really fun to, to share our notes. I want to go into Robinhood's just exceptional growth. So again, from you know, 13, 14, you know, and growing million users. When did you know it was working? You know, from your own sort of watching the data, what was the moment when you said to yourself, oh goodness, this can actually be even bigger than I thought? It's interesting because there's different scales of working, right? And as you sort of go through each of the go go through each of the rings, the the scale of working increases. At the very beginning, I think our expectations were somewhat tempered relative to where we are now because We'd spent a few years experimenting with mobile products and trying to teach ourselves how to build products and didn't have a lot of a lot of traction with that. So some of the ideas that we rolled out prior to Robinhood weren't weren't very successful. But with Robinhood, it was a little bit different. So the day was, I think, December 13th, 2013, when basically we were working on our landing page for Robinhood. And we were planning to do some press about it. I think everyone was embargoed and everything. And the engineering team and Beju and I were just at the office on a Friday night, just looking through the emails, making sure everything was formatted. And we decided to put the website live because the furthest thing from our mind was that someone would find it and it would, you know, go viral on the internet and we would piss off reporters in advance of our embargo. So the idea of it actually like going viral was just unfathomable. And so we were, you know, messing around with it. And then I go home, I, I get some emails about, you know, our website receiving traffic. So I, I pop open Google Analytics and I see something like 500 simultaneous visitors, which is, you know, 
hundreds more than we were hundreds of times what we were expecting. We thought, you know, five concurrent visitors from the people working on it. Uh, and then I look at what's going on and I see Hacker News is sending a bunch of traffic our way. And I've been a fan of, of Hacker News for a really long time. So I click in and I still remember, um, and I have screenshots of this because I was obviously furiously screenshotting everything the whole day. But I remember number one was the Chinese landing a spacecraft on the moon. Number two was Google buying Boston Dynamics, the, uh, the robotic dog company. And then number three was Robinhood stock trading. So I was like, well, that's pretty big news. You know, one and two, we can't possibly leapfrog the Chinese moon landing. But 20 minutes later, there we were, number one on Hacker News. I was calling my parents. I was like, they were like, what is Hacker News? I've never heard of that. Screenshotting from all sorts of different angles. Um, and then we realize, like, crap, we've got to get to the office and wire up the emails because we're launching on a Saturday, apparently. And we ended up launching that Saturday, getting about 10,000 people on the wait list. I think the number was 50,000 by the end of the first week and got up to about a million uh, by the time we started rolling people off the wait list about a year later. So I think pretty early on, we got the sense that there was something very interesting there and, and something was working and we just had to keep probing at it, keep doubling down and keep listening to customers so that we could, we could make it better and better and bigger and bigger. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. From having read and, and learned a lot about you and also just even from this conversation, it's really clear to me, you know, you're not in it just to build a really big successful company. You deeply care about the mission, which, you know, I, I have said many times has been almost most of my life's work. You want to help make Americans investors. And part of the challenge of that is a financial literacy issue, which is, you know, we can all graduate high schools, colleges, graduate programs, and financial, basic financial literacy is not taught really anywhere. You know, some of the schools are adding it. We're starting to see it. But I was preaching this 12 years ago. You cared about it 12 years ago. And it's still not dramatically improved. How do you think about that? How do you think about helping um, make people become investors? Just what is, what is the way you process that responsibility? And maybe talk a little bit about your vision of what you hope for. I think one of the reasons why financial literacy has sort of, there, there hasn't been kind of an aha moment for it just yet is because nobody's really put together the combination of product and educational material in, in the right way. Where it could get really interesting is, it, it's almost like learning a skill, right? Like if you're learning to play the violin or the piano or learning math, there's a portion of it which is just actual learning, watching videos, reading books, and so forth. And there's a 
obviously much larger portion uh, with these skills, which is like practicing and getting 1% better each day. And I think a lot of financial literacy is focused on kind of the former, which is, you know, more passive educational content to try to teach you these concepts, but has kind of ignored the fact that practice is, is most important. And a lot of these things, you know, you just have to get an intuitive feel for, and that happens from doing it with sort of low stakes and small amounts, but doing it over a long period of time. The really interesting opportunity is how can you actually like combine the traditional educational content with the tools and the ability to transact in a way that gives people that feedback loop and, and actually makes it fun for them to continue, like makes it makes the whole process enjoyable so that you feel better for, for making progress and improving as an investor. Vlad, knowing that you're sitting at the forefront of the American wallet right now, and you have a really unique perch in that, as you fast forward a decade, so 10 years from now, what would you say is obvious to you? Um, what are the just maybe, and it can be a trend or something that you just know is going to exist or just any vantage point that you have unique to you that's just really, really clear. Um, but any big bet, any big prediction that you see kind of in maybe call it five to 10 years out, that's just clear. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that I, I think we're pretty sure are going to be clear that maybe weren't clear even five years ago, right? One is that, I do think consumer finance will be predominantly mobile. So I think in, in the same way that mobile has kind of become the primary device for so many other things, mobile will continue to be primary and sort of accelerate in financial services as well. So your phone is, is going to turn into your wallet, not just kind of physically in the sense that you'll put your cards in your wallet case, but more and more of the functionality that you'd expect from a wallet will be in your phone and actually more functionality than, than you would have in your wallet. So I think lending, investing, saving, and spending are, are going to be consolidated. The lines between them are going to be more blurry than they are now. And I think some of those boundaries will be redefined and, and they're all, they'll all be mobile primary. I think crypto is here to stay. I think a lot of people have been talking about, you know, is crypto just a fad? Is it just like a technology searching for a problem, right? I think that categorically, it's going to be an increasing part of the financial system globally, especially as you start seeing globally, you know, concerns about inflation and interest rates. So I think in a lot of ways, I buy the analogy between crypto and gold, one way to think about it is kind of as a scarce commodity where the cost of storage and the cost of sort of uh, transferring it from place to place and the odds of it being devalued are just much better parameter wise. So I think, I think that's going to be interesting. And I think that uh, it'll be increasingly global and this might take a little bit longer, but you're already seeing it in some ways. Financial services is largely country specific with some minor exceptions of like remittances and payments. But I think over time, you'll see more and more of the best products across all these categories from any market in the world being available to customers of, of other markets. Vlad, I want to transition a little bit to you. You're clearly exceptionally bright. It's clear that you love to build. 
What would you say is the thing that's been most surprising to you um, being a founder? I don't know if I expected much of it, you know, looking back, would I have been able to expect that, you know, the business would, would scale like this and, and I'd be in this position. I, I think it's been a surprise, you know, entrepreneurship. I didn't have a whole lot of exposure to it. I grew up on the East coast. I largely went to Stanford somewhat on, on a whim because I just really liked the campus. But my initial idea was to go and be a, a scientist and a researcher. I was always really good at, at math and science growing up. And part of it was just getting a ton of positive reinforcement. Like if you're good at something, people will just encourage you to, to do it more and more. And I ended up, you know, getting all the way to a math PhD before I realized that, you know, maybe this isn't something that I want to spend the rest of my life doing. Beju and I started our first business. Yeah, generally without much thought into what it would mean for the future. I, I think we just, we really enjoy just working together. And when we graduated from college and we weren't able to do that anymore because we, we went to different places, I think we, we realized that we missed that a lot. And <laughs> this was kind of like the, the one thing, unless we transferred to the same grad school or something and worked on research together, this was one of the few avenues that we had of, of actually uh, building something. And I think entrepreneurship just grew out of that. Like we realized we enjoyed working on this. We enjoyed building. We enjoyed talking to customers and trying to bring other people along to help us bring the vision to reality. And, you know, getting a little bit better at it each and every day over 10 plus years of us working together and, and six plus years of, of Robinhood existing, I think leads you to some surprising places. So I'm surprised that how much it takes and how frequently you have to kind of reinvent your approach. Early days, we would do everything. Like we get our hands extremely dirty. You know, everyone was doing customer research because we were in one room. And so when we brought in customers, like everyone would just sit down and talk about the experiences they had. And at thousand plus employees, it becomes a lot, uh, a lot different. You have to have process, you have to hire great new leaders and it's different, but it's very, very interesting in its own right. And uh, I've definitely been enjoying the journey. What advice would you pay it forward to other founders out there for when you have to go through a challenge? Like how have you learned to just grit through a challenge or something that's really hard? Um, and I always joke, founders jobs, it's the only job that the better are you are at it, the harder the job gets. What would you say you've learned about going through challenges that you could pay it forward to other founders? I think it's about your mindset, you know? Yeah, because you're right. And I think it's a great way to put it. The faster you grow, the bigger the company gets, the more pro problems sort of like increase along with growth. And I think that you have to, you have to really internalize the mindset that the more impact you want to have, the larger the friction is going to be and the more problems you're, you're going to have. And I think uh, sometimes it can be difficult for sure, um, but you have to enjoy the journey, right? The journey is ultimately what we have as founders. Part of enjoying the journey is really, really enjoying the people that you work with. And I think that that's sort of the underappreciated benefit of being, being a founder. You basically get to create the team and craft the team. And, you know, as, as a chief executive, I have the responsibility of growing the team and making sure that it works well together. 
And part of that is, is obviously the interest of the business and getting the best people possible, but also it's people that you enjoy working with and that I enjoy working with a lot and having those people around when there are challenges and just benefiting from their, their wisdom and their endurance and, and the way they think about things and solve problems with diverse perspectives, I think makes it a lot better. Uh, I love that. I, I want to ask, what are the habits or hacks that you swear by? You know, a decade in here, you've clearly figured out some ways to just really be efficient, streamline your life, or there's a routine that if it doesn't happen, you just don't do as well. What are those? Yeah, um, I think a big part of it is the routine. Um, you know, just just knowing that, like, I mean, one example is knowing that when I go to sleep, I'm not going to just be on Twitter for 30 minutes, right? So I have my bedtime routine where, you know, if I'm at home, I plug my phone in downstairs, right, on another floor. And I have like a very analog alarm clock that doesn't have any technology to it. And I wake up, I don't check my phone, you know, I do my stuff. And then I, I only get to my phone when I'm like ready to, to do it and, and ready to start working. So it, it's things like that. And I haven't like that particular one's probably a couple of years old, but if you find something that works, I think you, you just have to go with it. And if something's not working for you being self-aware to stop doing it, I've tried all kinds of diets and, and different routines and, and all sorts of stuff. But I think just having a routine and sticking through it sort of provides a lot of, a lot of normalcy. You've grown from, you know, a few handful of people to over a thousand employees. Any advice you would have for others as they scale their business? Is there one or two things that you just learned is invaluable as you scale the, the culture to keep the culture? It's a double-edged sword, right? Um, I think you'll have lots of people attached to different aspects of the culture. So you really have to look at each individual thing and, and ask, is that serving us well um, as we're you know, now a thousand person company rather than a hundred person company. And I think a lot of times what people end up saying, and I, maybe this is gonna be somewhat controversial, but what they like about a startup is that there's no process and everything's a little bit helter skelter. And they think the startup culture is one where, you know, you just do stuff with no process. Um, well, at some point, I think that starts to work against you. And um, I've at least started appreciating process and saying, hey, like the right process for the right group of people at the right time can actually make you go a lot faster. So I think you have to figure out these these habits and rituals, which ones are working for you, which ones are working against you and uh, sort of be willing to, to experiment, change something if you think that there'll be a, a benefit. And, you know, sometimes you might end up unwittingly changing something that people that people want. And um, you have to trust your in intuition about bringing it back or, or transforming it. But um, I think I'm, I'm always keen for a little bit more experimentation and keeping our principles the same. Um, and, and our number one principle is just uh, talk to customers, listen to customers. Um, and we've, we've really tried hard to figure out how to scale with that as, uh, as employees have, have increased at the company. 
I love it. Um, quick fire round, super fast answer. Gonna go fast here. Um, coolest pinch me moment so far at Robin Hood. Ah, uh, cool. Okay. Well, there was a couple. One of them is uh, all of our competitors dropping their commissions to zero about a year ago. Um, and that, that was sort of an interesting moment because, um, you know, it uh, at first it was a little bit scary. Um, like I, I didn't know how to react to it. I've never seen anything like that before. Um, but then you kind of realize that in order to be successful at our mission, it's not just enough to have our own customers get a great deal. Actually, you have to get the industry to change so that every customer has has a great deal. So I think when I when I sort of thought about it that way, I really appreciate it as a unique moment in time. I loved it. And from afar, that was a moment where I said, wow, look at this. You have like the young kid incumbents changing the big old industry. And it made me really proud. Um, uh, if you fast forward to 2022, how many days a week are we in the office? <laughs> well, uh, personally, I, I can't wait to get back into the office. <laughs> safely. And, uh, you know, I, I anticipate I'll be back to the office working, uh, working eight days per week. Uh, so. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, other than Robinhood, one startup that we should know about, you get to pay it forward to one cool idea. It can be anything, um, a company you want to pay it forward to. Okay. Well, well, uh, that, yeah, that's a good one. Um, so, um, I guess I'll shout out Vise, uh, so I'm an angel investor in a company called Vise, um, uh, with uh, yeah, founded by two very very talented young entrepreneurs. Um, it's a platform for independent investment advisors, and they just uh, they announced um, a round of fundraising led by Sequoia. So because it's it's so time appropriate, uh, I'd have to give a shout out to. Samir and, and Runic, uh, appreciate you guys and good luck. Uh, I love that. That's been fantastic. Everybody out there, uh, let's thank Vlad. Vlad, thank you so much for joining us today. Guys, if you haven't already uh, checked out Robinhood, please download Robinhood or check out Robinhood.com and join us next week for the Founders Project with Alexa Montobel. Thank you so much, Vlad. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>